Well, hello there, wonderful teachers. I want to invite you to an event we're doing this summer. It's in Cincinnati, Ohio, so you have to be able to make it there, but it might be worth traveling for if you're able to. It's happening on July 20th and 21st, so that's over a weekend, and it's going to be the best two days for teachers. We're going to have a ton of fun. We're going to learn a lot about pedagogy and creative teaching and business. We have two fabulous guest speakers and we're even going to finish with an optional Kaylee. That's an Irish dancing party. So I hope you'll be able to join me. Just go to vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo that's dot com slash t-u-r-b-o 24 the numbers two four. I hope you'll check it out view all the details there and I hope to see you in Cincinnati in July. On with the episode. Vibrant, vibrant, vibrant music teaching. Proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for music teachers. You're listening to the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Canton, and in this episode, we're talking about mindfulness with Joanna Sheel. Today, lovely teachers, we're joined again by the wonderful Joanna Scheel, who's one of our staff writers and editors at Vibrant Music. We're discussing the use of mindfulness techniques in piano performance today. So, Joanna, let's start with this idea of mindfulness. What is it, roughly, loosely, and why would we want to bring it into our studios? Yeah, so mindfulness, I think, is really about being aware being aware, so being and uh, being present. Being in piano lessons, especially, it's about being aware of your body and how your body is moving, and also being in the present as much as you can with your music, and especially during performance, trying to uh, draw and everything that you have learned and prepared and just trust yourself to be able to do things. And for your students, it's about, I think, making habits in lessons, making, doing things regularly so that, especially with around mindfulness, so that it's something that they can draw upon really, really easily when they are faced with a more stressful situation. This when we are faced with situations like performances or doing exams, yeah, we tend, it's easy. We, we rely on what we have inside of us already. We rely on everything we've learned so that we can react quickly or react quickly is not the right thing, but you know, we can use it to our advantage in performance. So we don't have to think too hard about things. So I think that's really what mindfulness is. Yeah, we want to develop these mindfulness techniques in the lesson so that students can draw from them in a much less serious way. It's kind of like emergency personnel and their training. They'll say like the training just kicked in, like when the emergency finally happened, the training just kicks in. They don't think about it. They're not questioning what the steps are because they're so drilled in it. So we almost want it to be that kind of a reaction where it's just, I'm in a performance, I'm experiencing nerves or anxiety this is my tool to deal with that. And it's just automatic that we draw from it. And yeah, I think in some ways, mindfulness is this term. It's one of those terms that is almost so much in the zeitgeist the last few years that 
it can be a bit, I don't know, it can sound a bit like tokenism or it can sound a bit like what do people really mean by that or they're just saying it to be trendy or something like that. I think of it as almost the antidote to prediction in a bad way and to rumination. So it's about staying in the present, which helps us not, you know, look at our mistakes and say, oh, why did I do that? Why did I do that? When it's already done, you know, it's finished. Or think forward and say, oh, the tricky part is coming up. The tricky part is coming up in a performance situation, right? We're helping ourselves stay in the present. So it's really, it can be as simple as that. It doesn't have to mean meditation or you know, getting into a yoga practice or whatever. It can mean various things, but it's all about staying in the present. Would you agree with that, Joanna? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So how can we start this conversation with students? Because obviously we're not going to talk about rumination. Like this isn't helpful what I'm saying right now. So how could we start this chat with our students? I think I know in the UK that a lot of schools are now starting to introduce some simple mindfulness work in the curriculum not all schools but some are and I think more and more people are doing more mindfulness activities in their daily life so you might be actually kind of surprised at what your students already know about things like yoga or some simple breathing exercises even or maybe you can talk to them about some things that they've done in the past it could be like a performance a musical performance and ask them how they worked through that and you might be surprised that they already have a few tools that they use in their daily lives to help them with different situations so I would start in that place and just see just gauge kind of where your students are at do they already have some tools that they're using and you can start to build upon those or perhaps introduce some tools that they that you think would resonate them so if they're a particularly person perhaps they would enjoy they maybe they probably already do things like stretching as part of their exercise so maybe you could introduce them a new exercise so very simple yoga or stretching things like that could be really really good or if you find a student that is kind of someone who I this is me <laughs> I was always told to breathe deeply that I stop mm. breathing when I get stressed or anxious and my I had a teacher who used to always ask me to stop and take some really deep breaths and then begin to perform that like to do that before the performance if you can see your student is struggling with certain things, you know, you could introduce a tool to target that. Um, and it, of course, every student is different. And so you will need different tools for different people. But yeah, that's yeah. where I would begin with that. Absolutely. We'll talk about some of those tools in a second. One, one thing you mentioned in your article was starting this conversation about uh, performance and nerves in or nervousness in general. And asking the student where they feel that, right, in their body or how they experience nervousness. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. And it's actually really interesting. Some people, you know, it depends also on your upbringing as well. And it's not, I wouldn't say it's something that we do well in society. I think it's kind of actually noticing feelings or noticing like what does the feeling of you know nervousness feel like where does it come from in the body and then you know what are the thoughts 
that we're coming up with that are making us feel nervous and I, we probably need to start with that first of all and it, I think this would be particularly useful with students do you get really really nervous or really anxious so I should just try and sit with them and think of some of those thoughts that they're having and where they're feeling it in their body as well yeah absolutely yeah just getting them to acknowledge what it actually feels like actually I think in if for teachers that do group workshops, I think this can be a great discussion to have there too, because the students can kind of, even the students who really have trouble figuring out what that feels like, they can start to identify with some of the other things students are saying and start to see how they're all experiencing it, maybe in different ways, but there are some similarities between those as well, right? Yeah, I think that's one of the best, one of the great benefits of group lessons. Uh, and I found that as well myself, just having others to share their experiences helps you identify your experiences. It's so useful. Yeah, absolutely. And your peers specifically, like, because you can do your best to have this conversation with them, but on some level, they're still thinking, but you're an adult, so you don't experience this or it's different for you, even if it isn't. That's how they kind yeah. of feel about it. It seems like it's different for adults. So if you can get kids together, I think that's even better. Okay, let's get into some of these tools. And you shared five tools in your article, which are all great places to start. And I think it's useful to have all of these in mind. So as you said, you can draw on different ones to suit different students or experiment with them. So the first one you had mentioned with yo was yoga. How could we use yoga in our studios? Yeah, so I think yoga has a double benefit of being really good at starting to feel or, or move the different places that we use when we actually play the piano or a different instrument. It helps bring awareness to the fingers, wrists, to the arms, but um, and I think if you cultivate that, it, it just starts to become, you start to become much more aware of all of these areas. Also, yoga is strongly connected to the breath. So my thinking is really around making these things habits, you know, things that you just do once you decide to choose a tool to do it very regularly and encourage students to do that in their own time as well. Maybe as a warm up, or you could do it before a performance or before, you know, they try something challenging in their music. Just try to connect it to certain points in the lesson so that they start to draw on those things automatically in their practice and hopefully when they are faced with something like performance or an exam. Absolutely. And I think a variety of different things and just little things you can explore in lessons, um, different poses and things. We have an article on this that I wrote about some of the poses you might try in piano lessons, which ones might be particularly useful for us. You can experiment with all kinds of poses. The thing I would say is, to add on to that is, I think it's useful to also teach students some seated yoga, and you can look on YouTube or wherever for some seated yoga poses, because when you're in that situation where you can't go to a back room, right, there is no backstage area before you perform, you're sitting in an audience or you're sitting in like the waiting room in an exam center or something like that, that you could still tap into some of that by doing some seated poses that are more subtle, right? Because as much as 
we might want to get up and like do a forward fold or whatever. <laughs> we might feel too awkward to do that in that circumstance. I wish society was such that that was completely normal, but unfortunately it's not. And if you have a teenager, you know, that's going to be too embarrassing. They're just not going to do it, most of them. Good on them if they do, but most of them aren't. So some seated yoga poses can be great. And one more suggestion on that is if you have a student who this seems to be really helpful for them and you think they could use this, you know, even in other areas of their life, you think they could get into it more, you might send a link to a slightly longer video or something to the parents as a suggestion, you know. You don't have to push it on anyone, but they might take the suggestion. They might run with it. Maybe it'll be helpful in all sorts of areas. You never know. So again, you can look on YouTube for like kids specific yoga sessions and they'll often include like little playful elements like hopping around like a frog or something like that. And maybe the parents try that with students just if you want to take it to the next level. Yeah, I love that idea of seated yoga especially. Yeah, yeah, because we have these tools, right? And they're great at home. But we can't necessarily do all of them when we're in that circumstance. So we need subtler versions. Okay, what if teachers are not into yoga or the student is just not into it? It's a bit too, I don't know, serious or too reserved or something like that for them. What else could we do in terms of physically warming up? Yeah, so I I love the vibrant music teaching warm-ups. I don't know if any, if you've tried them. Nick, I know you, of course, you tried to. Obviously, I've, I've tried them, listeners. but listeners, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that we had, I think we have, is it four? Four different ones? Yeah, we have four, well, three sort of sets, which have a bunch in them. So there's quite a lot. There's like, I'd say, 25 individual different videos. Oh, sure. Time. Yeah. Four sets, yeah, exactly. So, and what I love about these exercises is that, well, these warm-ups, is that they're very quick, very quick. So, you know, if you're someone who is teaching a shorter lesson for whatever reason, you can use these warm-ups very easily, very quickly in the lesson. I think there's something like 30 seconds to about a minute and you can yeah. make them longer. You can make them longer, you can make them shorter, you could customize them. You know, I think you don't have to do the same warm-up each time. You can ask the students to choose what warm-ups they want to do there are videos as well to help you understand how to do the warm-up together um but they're also really silly i think that's the thing i like the best is they they sort of they just introduce an energy to the lesson that is playful and fun and creative and imaginative you know you're like imagining it's like we have seat exercises and we have Halloween warm-ups, things like that. So they're just not, they're not like boring average warm-ups. <laughs> There's imagination to it as well, which I think is a great way to kickstart the lesson. So, and that just loosens up everything, loosens up the arms, the hands, the legs. It's kids or adults, if they want, like up, moving, jumping. I think it's really great. So I would recommend those, especially... A student maybe struggles to find the quietness, or maybe they're just done with yoga that week and they just need a silly activity to lighten the mood or just to get them moving. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, for members looking for those, they're called one minute warm ups. They're all under a minute, so they're called one minute warm ups because that's the maximum length of time they take. And yeah, they're basically, they're all sets of three different things. So, there's a sort of 
gross motor, big, tall body thing, which might be like jumping jacks or jumping up and down or, yeah, different things. And then there's a slightly smaller one, which is normally some kind of arm stretch. And then there's a finger thing at the end. So it sort of goes from big to small in that way. But they're all with silly things. You know, you're pretending to be a squid or something like that. So as Joanna said, it's just a way of stretching, but also getting the silliness into the lesson and some of the fun. And maybe shaking off the school day, like if if students are coming to you after a long day of school or other activities, I think it can be a great way to kind of center in the lesson and get started with that tone of playfulness, as you said. So our third tool then, Joanna, was helpful thoughts. How can we train ourselves to think helpful rather than unhelpful thoughts? I think with this one, it yeah, I'm just thinking now of my Portuguese class. That I'm, t- I'm taking the Portuguese class at the moment, and in the classroom we have this poster of this that typical affirmation. I think it's true of a mountain, and there's someone on the top of the mountain, and something about like climbing, climbing the mountain every day gets you further up the mountain, or something like that. <laughs> Those like kind of posters. I think I'm saying is that could feel a little bit hollow. I think that kind of affirmation. So I think yeah. what's really useful is to work with the student to create their own affirmation. So if they are struggling with something in particular and they're having a particular thought that is not helping them, this is your time to sit with them and to say and change it into something a little bit more help. So for example, if you have a student, and this happens to me frequently, that says, I can't do this, too difficult. You can change that. Let's take that sentence and change it to something that is helpful and also true. It's got to be true. Something yeah. that they actually believe and is, is useful then. So perhaps that particular student, I would work them to change that into, I am still trying, I am learning, and I just don't have it yet. Something like that. And it might be different, but if a student, if I had 10 students that you said, I can't do this, it's too difficult, changing that into a helpful thought would be different for each of them. So it's very particular. And often I find, and I find this even with piano practice, we tend to make the same mistakes or errors in the same places each time. And it is often that thought that comes up a lot. So if you're finding that, it would be, I think, helpful to kind of create something for them that they could keep by them at home, maybe something in lesson they could use. Or if you have a particular thought that does crop up a lot between different students, you could maybe create a poster or something to put that you show students that they're still learning, it's still a process. So that's what I mean by helpful. Yeah, no, I love this. And I love the idea of setting something up that you can use again and again, and it being individual to the student. And sometimes, you know, it might be some reference to a cartoon they watch, like it could be kind of obscure and not really make a lot of sense on its own. But it's what helps them get through it, right? So you have that discussion and you see if they um, can come up with something or you can come up with something together that makes sense to kind of squash that thought down when it when it happens. I love the idea of having some kind of a visual reminder of it too. Just when you were talking there, I was thinking maybe they even make a picture that like represents 
that phrase that they have or write the phrase on the picture, you know, and it's a picture of a mountain, but they drew it themselves and it makes sense for what they're actually saying to themselves at that moment. And maybe if they're open to it, you display those in the studio because then they can kind of borrow each other's and see how they're all kind of struggling with the same thing. I think that would be lovely camaraderie for them. Absolutely. And I love that idea about borrowing something from cartoon, maybe. You know, maybe that I think it's very useful to have those images of people from media, maybe that are really, you know, do try really hard or, you know, do push through difficult situations and come out the other end, come out the other end okay. You know, just have those, oh, yeah, that person did it or, you know, this character in this book did it. You know, to have yeah. those reminders are really, really, really useful. Yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, even Superman makes mistakes or whatever the, you know, the character is in their mind. That's, that's cool. Superman isn't that cool anymore, right? But anyway, <laughs> whoever it is for them, they can tap into that. Okay, we've got two suggested tools to go. So the next one was embracing emotion. What does that mean? So it's about just allowing students to feel what they're feeling you know it's I think it can be really easy or tempting I think it's better word tempting as a teacher to say oh don't worry or you don't need to stress yeah. about this you've got it or yeah. yeah you know just trying to squash down or just trying to wipe away a feeling but actually there are, there are all kinds of feelings that we experience as people and they're all okay and they're all here and they're not going to go away by saying, oh, don't, you don't need to stress about this. You don't need to be nervous. You can do this. <laughs> it doesn't help. And I think sometimes when you are pushing those feelings away, you can just make them worse or they don't really go away, you know. And actually, if you make space for them and allow them just to be there, it's not that big a deal. It's just part of what you're feeling. And that's it. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's about making space for everything and not really labeling things as that's a bad thing. You shouldn't be feeling this or you don't need to be feeling this. So just allow it. Yeah. The thing that always comes to mind for me with this is for several years now, I've been very careful when a student says, oh, this is so hard or this is too hard even not to say, no, it isn't. It's easy. Or you've done this before or, you know. It, it's not as hard as it looks, because I think what that actually says to the student is it's not hard for everyone else. That's why you're saying this, but it is hard for me. And therefore, they feel even more like a failure. At least that's how I kind of see the thought process sometimes going through. Whereas what I tr make myself say now is, yes, it is hard, but, you know, we're going to work on it together or this is how we're going to solve it or let's do it this way first. Like I have a, a next step. But the first thing I say is, yes, it is hard. Because it is for where they're at. Like, it is hard to do. That's why they said that. And acknowledging that it is difficult is really important, I think. Absolutely. And also, it tells them that if it is hard, that they can still do it, even if it's hard, even if it's been too challenging right now, and this is how we're going to do it. We're, you know, then you give them the tools. Okay, we're going to break it down, or we're going to go slowly, or maybe we're just going to leave it because it is too difficult. We'll come back and try it again, and we will be able to do it, just not yet. So yeah, I think that's so important to learn that is such an important skill. Yes. And if it is the case that the repertoire is just too hard and we've misjudged it, to acknowledge that too, 
like that okay. it was our fault. We made a mistake, just like everyone makes mistakes. Sometimes we assign things that are too hard. And yeah, we need to kind of, yeah, take the blame for that almost. Just like put it on us if it is our fault that we assign them the wrong thing so that they don't think, oh, I was supposed to be good enough for this, but I'm not. And that's why it's getting taken away. No, we just misjudge the difficulty sometimes. So, okay. Our final tool then is a simple one, Joanna, and that is breath work. How can we use breathing in our lesson? Yeah, it's so simple. It's so powerful though. I just personally, breath work has been so important for me. And I think when people get anxious or nervous, the first thing to go is the breath. Mm-hmm. And when we stop breathing, we stop taking in as much oxygen, which kind of doesn't go to our heads and it can really stop us from thinking clearly. And then we get caught up in our body. Yeah. Some very, there are many, many different breathing exercises. One that I really love is kind of uh, this box uh, method where you're counting to the corner of the box, maybe for five, and then you count down to the next corner of the box, and then the next corner of the box until you make the complete box, and then you do it again. So you're kind of, it's a double whammy there because you're visualizing or thinking or something to focus on. So your, your thoughts are focusing on something very neutral, and then you're also taking in those deep breaths, which really helps. And this is a really great tool, especially in a former situation, because no one's done it. It's, it's actually quite normal to see a pianist just take a moment or a musician take a moment before they do a performance, or before they begin their performance. You could be doing that breathing exercise that they most performers will be doing. It's just trying to get ready and send themselves. Just a side note to this, if you can get your students singing, get them to practice some breathing exercises to singing, that mm-hmm. can be really good. Or just get them to join a choir. It's, it's just so beneficial because you're having to take in really deep breaths sometimes to make long notes. I always find that when I'm singing in a choir, I come out feeling really good. <laughs> and it's because I'm breathe- I do lots of breathing exercises. I'm singing, having to hold long notes and actually singing with other people feels really good. So that's a little tip. If you can get your students to join a choir, that's so good. Yeah, absolutely. Very helpful. I mean, very helpful for many reasons. (laughs) If we can get more of our students singing in general, that would be wonderful. But yeah, I love the box breath exercise too. In my mind, it's like a beam of light. So students can picture it like a laser, which is kind of cool to them. But you're just tracing this light going around a box and that helps you to focus on something and, you know, slow things down. And it can be your favorite color or something that's fun for the student as well. I do have, I've had some students over the years who forget to breathe while they're playing, like you mentioned earlier. And then one in particular, you would notice like he would suddenly gasp. Like there's like this gasping sound that would happen every so often because he was not breathing at all. And then obviously his body protested and he would kind of gasp and then continue not breathing. So with students like that, what I like to do is connect it to the music. And this is something I never confirmed this, but a a former teacher of mine used to breathe like this when she was playing. And I don't know whether it was because she would forget to breathe or 
it was just what she naturally did. But anyway, breathing in, for example, as a phrase is rising and out it is, as it's falling, or you can connect it to like crescendo, diminuendo, or something that's happening in the piece where you can think about, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out. And that also can be a helpful distraction in performance because it gives you something else for your mind to do rather than thinking, oh, this is a tricky bit or I'm going to make a mistake or my aunt's in the audience watching me. I wonder what she's thinking or whatever. I love that. That's amazing. And I think... <laughs> you ever tried that? No? Never. I'm going to try that in my personal and professional life. And yeah. also, I think, now I'm thinking about it, yeah, that's what you do as a wind instrument, as a instrumentalist that plays wind instruments or brass instruments, right? You have to breathe with the phrase. You have to so, think through your breathing, breathing, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's the same with the singing, right? Yeah, that's cool. Why not do it in yeah. piano as well? Yeah, and you can do it while you're playing. So, yeah, this particular teacher, like, you could hear her breathing. Not that it was so loud, but, like, I noticed it because she would obviously demonstrate pieces for me a lot, and I would notice how she did that. It was often in on the way up a phrase kind of thing and then out on the way down a phrase. And it helps sort of to have that release at the end of the phrase as well, like it makes musical sense. So yeah. anything like that you can do to connect it just for those students who really do struggle to keep their breathing nice and even or breathe at all while they're playing. Okay, Joanna, this has been fantastic. And I think we've given everyone five great tools to try. I'm just going to remind people to pick one, as we often say, so just do one thing. If you've never tried any of these, Pick the one that sounds easiest to you right now, whether that's yoga or the silly one minute warm ups or the helpful thoughts framework, embracing emotion, making sure you're not, you know, squashing kids emotions, but instead talking about them or it's some kind of breathing exercise. Just pick one of them, one that's new to you and try it out this week. And we'd love to hear how you get on with that. So any of your techniques for coping with performance nerves or mindfulness exercises you do in your studio, we'd love to hear about them. Come chat to us in the Vibrant Music Studio Teachers Facebook group. If you ever get overwhelmed by all the different teacher training options out there, Vibrant Music Teaching is the place for you. We nickname our members Flamingos because they're masters of balancing all of the things and making it all work in a way that isn't overwhelming. We have tools to help you do that inside Vibrant Music Teaching. So go to vmt.ninja and sign up today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I hope you loved it and I wanted to pop on here one more time to remind you about our event. It's happening in Cincinnati this July and you can get all the details at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo. See you there.